Revenge of the Aces Kids has been rated P for podcast. Justin, Justin, wake up. I wouldn't bother. He's impossible to rouse once he's drifted off, particularly when there's work to be done. He did party rather hearty at the 100th after-show celebrations. I never knew he could tap dance, much less from table to table. Still, it's all over now. Back to the old routine. There's no need to be sad. In fact... I quite like the aftermath of a party. I'm not very keen on crowds, and there's something soothing about them all... leaving. Yes. Well, we're finished tidying, which now occurs to me was entirely unnecessary, as we could just, you know, uh, switch hologram off. Uh, shall we go to bed? No, let's take advantage of this gratuitous American diner set and have a long cup of coffee and a putting the world to rights chat. For indeed, we are some some 80s kids. Not all of the 80s kids. This is a bit of an old school show, I, I, it occurs to me, as I've been putting the archive together and taking note of what we've been doing. Uh, just me and Ian having a bit of a chin wag, like the old days. Wouldn't it go full retro? I can plug my crap microphone back in and we can go <laughs> for the full hog. <laughs> it's like a reboot, though, you see, because we're doing an old thing, but in the new style. So we'll have some explosions, the poster will be like blue and orange and, you know, all the all the modern conveniences of that age, you know, but with just, you know, an old format that we're borrowing. It occurs to me that even in the setup for this show, we've kind of cut across the topic, which I've started, you know, the only, the whole, the old saw, nostalgia ain't what it used to be, um, which uh, is, is exactly, you know, what I wanted to sort of centre on after after the 100th because of course last week we unveiled the 80s kids archive which means that I've looked back on our own shows and seen the beginning of the, the great journey it, it is weird because I thought we'd kind of approached or tackled everything in a fairly consistent manner I mean it's only two years worth of shows but uh, I can't help but notice that uh, each section each decade or part thereof has its own Mood. I mean, listening to our show about 1984, we were filled, and the shows about, you know, television in the 80s, we are filled with misty-eyed nostalgia for those things. Um, and although, you know, 2005 and six are like 10 years ago, a decade ago now, we're not quite as filled with nostalgia for those things as we were for those. So I just, I just wanted to sort of flag that. How, how are you feeling about that well, whole? We are the 80s kids, so the 80s is our stomping ground. It's our, it's our primal childhood, so the feels are strong. This is when everything was new and the stuff we saw was the first kind of time we saw stuff like this. And of course, once you get into the 90s, I suppose there is an element of cynicism of like, oh, you kids, you think this is good? I have seen people leaving comments on YouTube, because I look up clips, obviously, doing this show. And people do leave comments saying things like, oh, films from the 90s were awesome. And I'm thinking, well, I'm looking in the future here. This is Generation Y coming up behind us. It's terrifying. Yeah, I mean, it, it is definitely a, a thing where... I mean, and it's the weird thing is, though... I thought we were insulated from that by the fact that there are new things. Uh, for example, yesterday being the 10th of April before we record this, Netflix released the Daredevil uh, television series, Un Upon the World. 
and some people have already watched all of it, what with there having been more than about 12 hours since the release time. I have watched episode one so far. I'm not artificially rationing myself. Really, I probably would have been up to episode three or four by now, except that the minute I put on the first episode, uh, Sue went, oh, here we go. You're taking control of the television. And I want to watch one episode. I'm quite excited about this. But the thing about it is not so much whether I was taking over the television or not, but we have not seen this before, ever. New things, in the sense of things that we have not seen before, are constantly seem to uh, uh, bubble up, as it were. I mean, I know that there's a bit of nuance here, that uh, we have seen superheroes before, you know, Iron Man, Thor, we're all familiar with those guys, and we have seen a Marvel television series in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., But a superhero television series delivered through Netflix in one hearty parcel? Never seen that. And as well as which, it's sort of the first, I would say, even Netflix series, because they've done like House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, a few uh, acceptable comedies and things like that. But it's the first one where it's like, this is a major deal, you know, like the the WB have got Arrow and The Flash and, you know, what have you. But uh, this is the first time that Netflix have put something out that's going to be kind of a big deal so you know it it, it had plenty of novelty going for it um at that point and and because of this because of the fact that you know we we're living in this era of of them delivering new content in new ways i thought you know I, f- I feel, you know, as someone who's just celebrated, weirdly, we celebrated our 100th the day before I celebrated my 40th birthday. And I thought I've managed to get to 40 and, and I'm not cynical and crabby and filled with nostalgia uh, that is completely unwarranted. I mean, you um, know, uh, to be honest, there's, wasn't this kind of always the case? And we call ourselves Revenge of the 80s Kids because in some ways we're saying... The good times are coming back after after a long period of suck. Films are quite decent on occasion. TV is is the golden era it is now. So we were kind of saying it was it was you know the kids from the eighties have grown up. They're in charge now, and crap's getting done. Yeah, I mean that's that's quite an interesting thing. I mean it, it, here in the UK, uh, it cannot. Well, I don't know. Maybe it has escaped your attention down there in Oz, and probably the US don't care at all. But we are having a general election soon. You know, this was passing pretty much like every other general election. I mean, the thing is, we have one, what, every five years? So I've been able to vote. Well, if we're having one when I'm 40, then the last couple would have been, you know, when I was 20 and when I was 25 and so on and so forth. So, I've, you know, it's, it's, it's even rarer than Olympics in a way. And they seem to come around every five minutes. This is only like my fourth opportunity to vote in my lifetime in a general election. And... It occurred to me that I'm at that age now where someone who's voting for the first time in this, you know, they've only just reached the age of majority in this country, could be looking at people like me, maybe, maybe a little bit older, and saying, hey, you know, you're the ones that were in charge of the, you know, in the same way that when I was 18 to 20 and I got my first vote, I was like, well, you know, we have to look at the record of those of us who are older. This is the condition in which they have left the country. So basically, basically they're, they're pinning on us new labour and the collapse of new labour and the horrible government we've had for the last five years. I mean, some are, yes. Uh, but I th- I would have to say that I, th- I think that that idea is planted by heads that are older than the actual heads that are doing the pinning. Yeah, that so- some people maybe in between those two polls are saying, well, you realise the mess you're voting in now is because of people who are older than both of us. Yeah, we, um, we, we had Thatcher to deal with, thank you very much. 11 years of Thatcher before we got our first chance to vote. You won't believe the pieces we had to pick up. <laughs> well, I think there's also the fact that, I mean, if you, I mean, although it might be seen as trivial that, you know, this whole uh, Revenge of the 80s kids film culture thing, when we say, well, now is the, you know, the, the summer of our, you know, things are coming to fruition. Some of us for the edges well whatever yes it is yes now is the time when the 80s kids are really starting to make their presence felt in the world of movies well does that is there any degree to which that 
spills out into other places that the people who are in the front and center now and sort of in charge are really the people who were running things in the late 80s early 90s i've got nieces and nephews now and i'm much happier about them growing up on a diet of marvel superhero movies than i'm about them My, my nephew was hugely into the prequel star wars movies immensely so the toys that he had he knew all the characters intimately it was very depressing I'm going to say, we're not saying it should be war-to-war Marvel everywhere, but we have a very good supply of it all. It seems to be on a good trend right now. We haven't really had a duff movie out of them since they began their sequence. So I, I don't know what you're overly worried about. Things are good. Why, why are you worrying? I'm not really worrying. I'm, I'm pontificating. I think that's yeah. where it is. I mean, my second point in, in the schnotes after, after nostalgia ain't what it used to be is that uh, I've, I've put we are the grown-ups we never wanted to be, but I think it's more pertinently, are we the grown-ups we never wanted to be? I mean, I, I've definitely detected in our commentary, uh, partic- I mean, you know, we finished the 90s to great jubilation, saying, oh, God, thank the Lord that that is over with, and, and we've come to the noughties, and so far it's been a bit lukewarm, really, as far as, you know, it, it's like the nine. at least, we you know, there was some passion and vitriol, directed at how terrible the 90s could be indeed uh, we've looked ahead at the film schedule for 2007 and that's not going to be a good year i mean it's weird it's like 2002 was like the best year to be a film student and it looks like 2007 is going to be like the worst year in films possibly ever the thing is, uh, going through the nineties at the time, I, I don't recall a feeling, a sense of being beaten down by a succession of terrible films. There was always optimism that the next film around the corner was going to be really, really good. Obviously, we gush about our childhoods. Everyone does gush about their childhood and what, what was there. And it wasn't Andy Pandy the greatest thing in the universe. And you, know, you go back and look at it these days and go, oh, God, really? This Teletubbies is far better. But I think it's true, perhaps, as we got closer we're becoming a bit more ambivalent we are less emotional about stuff it's just kind of there it was a bad movie a few years ago so what's the big deal because like i say we're still we're even we're still we're very optimistic about the future now we know there's things that are good and, and things that are bad we just avoid because we're a bit more wiser about it I'll, i do think well i think there is also a point where it, it's like the reason that we love some of the stuff that we love from the 80s for example i mean i was listening the other day to us chortling away about the idea of there being a novelization of metal mickey and further chortling was had at the idea that the gremlins audiobook in the uk was narrated by tom baker and so on and so forth i mean we were rolling around on the floor laughing at these artifacts of 80s culture and, and the sort of the strange intertextuality that these things produced they seemed like a good idea to the people who were producing them at the time and then after thereafter you know they became yeah, something the, yeah there's something the, the merchandising gremlins are far smarter these days well they, they tend to be but what i'm saying is that one of the things about that is these are things that are gone you know you would not think to do these things these days because they are over metal mickey is over the gremlins happened in the past to such an extent that they're thinking of rebooting it of course of course well, they this, are this was, going to be, this was in fact, again one of my one of my planks of saying you know nostalgia is not what it used to be we live in an era where you know unless a film is already a known commodity it's it's very hard to get it made with a new ip so recycling of old films old tv series is being rebooted as films it is the in thing surely People have nostalgia for things they can't possibly be have been nostalgic about. I was listening to people opining the other day, and I tend to agree that the reason they made that Guy Ritchie made that Sherlock Holmes movie with Robert Downey Jr. the way that he made it, indeed calling it Sherlock Holmes, was because if he'd called it, you know, nineteenth century action detective, nobody'd have gone to see it. In fact, one of the people who was opining said, I only went to see that because it was called Sherlock Holmes. And it's like, well, okay, so you wouldn't have gone to see it if it had been called 19th Century Action Detective. No. Okay, that's that's the the, way that human beings are. This is consumerism. You know, they're, they're dishing these things out to us because this is the model that works. If making new and fresh and interesting ideas work, they'd be doing it. It is odd, however, you know, in the past... As we say, diminishing returns on sequels. The idea was different. 
you weren't just going to be tuning out endless number of sequels because less and less people, the people who saw a sequel was, was a subset of people who'd seen the first film and it just gets to keep on getting smaller. So new films were always the preference based, you know, perhaps based on new novels that came out or something like that. These days, of course, we seem so adverse to new ideas. I think that's an, that's more of a, nostalgia has become a prison for us in a funny sort of way. You, not much less nostalgia, but kind of cultural radiation, known commodities, mm. words but, we're aware of. Yeah, but I'm, I'm guessing what I'm saying with the Sherlock Holmes thing is, this guy cannot possibly have been, oh, I remember the days when I got my freshly minted copy of the Strand magazine delivered by the London Postal Service <laughs> to my townhouse in the West End uh, and my butler would bring oh, it to me. You know, I am, I am sure the audience for that film don't even remember the Jeremy Brett ITV series, which <clears throat> is generally held as one of the better adaptations of Sherlock ever done. Um, which is fine, and the point about that is that, therefore, people are nostalgic for Sherlock Holmes, despite the fact that Sherlock Holmes happened, you know, the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes was dead before they were born, you know, and that's kind of weird. Familiarity is something which which people kind of gravitate towards, for sure, and sometimes they don't even think through the logical implications of that to the extent where they go, well, actually, why am I that bothered about this? It was, in its real sense, over before I was born. This Marvel run, you know, we all keep saying it can't last forever, although they're having a pretty bloody good try at making it. But it's not over. And I'm wondering if, to a certain extent, our tempered, more mature attitude of general uh, statesman-like approval is more to do with the fact we're still in the middle of it. You know, yeah. Avengers are well, out here that, for a couple of weeks. That's and... the exciting thing, though, isn't it, Leo? The fact that yes, it, is, it, is. it is happening now and it isn't, it isn't something we're looking back on. And so the, the immediacy and excitement of going to see something new, well, not new, but you know what I mean, is is very intoxicating. I feel young again. It's like falling in love with a younger woman all over again. You know, it's, it's, it's all good, isn't it? What, what is it that's really haunting you about the situation at the moment? I mean, I, I appreciate there's lots of things wrong with cinema these days. I think it's bad that new ideas are hard to get through. You know, see Pacific Rim, see Edge of Tomorrow. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and worry that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going to nose bomb and crash and burn in a, with a, a series of ignominiously terrible films. That's not what's keeping me awake. I'm just excited for what they're putting out at the moment. The, the third note that, that I have, which we've kind of touched on there, is that uh, I think that we get passionate about things because, and this is very important, they are nearly lost to us. Like all the things that people can get really passionate about are things that, in a sense, already happened and... Now they're not going to happen again. They're, they're a completed thing. It's, it's, I think it's a relative of that concept of telling people that they shouldn't meet their heroes because they're bound to disappoint. That, you know, you can have he- heroes from history because they're dead and, you know, therefore they're not likely to do anything to upset you. But I think that human beings don't want to attach themselves to ongoing things because they could suddenly take a, take a turn. Uh, so this is why people are so keen on Sherlock Holmes and The Lord of the Rings and, you know, things like that, because in a sense, they already happened. I mean, in a very real sense, they're slowly departing. Well, you are obsessed with death today, can I just say? <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's going, we're going somewhere, but I'm just saying that's, that's the thing. I mean, I think that's true. Do you well, not think that's true? I think people want to see Sherlock, even though they may not have read any of the original Strand magazine novels, may not have seen any of the classic adaptations, you know, didn't see the Basil Rathbone adaptations, didn't see the Jeremy Brett ITV series, but they've probably seen a parody of Sherlock Holmes somewhere along the line. They know what the setup is, they know what the format is, they know what they're getting into. That makes it a known commodity, so when they go to go see it, they're not going to get any unpleasant surprises that perhaps, you know, a, a Victorian-era action-adventure investigator might give them. To go on a different tangent entirely, we, get, we have Shakespeare. There's very few Shakespeare films getting made these days. And figures me, Shakespeare is one of the most, you know, recycled pieces of content that, that there is. So it's, clearly it's not just a fact that, oh, I know the name, I will go see this. There, there is an element of choice in, about this, you know, fitting things into genres that are like, I mean, the Sherlock Holmes that we got. It's, a, it's something of a departure from the classic template, shall we say. Uh, it's interesting that you should mention Shakespeare, uh, because 
in the last few years, we've had The Tempest and Much Ado About Nothing. And recently, Kevin Spacey did. Uh, weirdly, Richard III tends not to get like there is the Richard Long Crane, Richard III with Ian McKellen. But are there are uh, aside from this, there is Looking for Richard and Kevin Spacey's Now, which are both about Richard III without actually being productions of Richard III. I don't know what that says about Richard III, but yes, Shakespeare tends to get milled out in the background. Like people don't really notice many things. You know, like that Romeo and Juliet movie was about as as front and centre as a Shakespeare movie gets made. But it, yeah, it never stops. People return to Shakespeare. I think that Shakespeare has kind of got to the point where it's um it's a cultural phenomenon that is it is useful to look at from the point of view of of being anomalous, but it's yeah, but not like other cultural how, things. How many people have actually gone and seen Hamlet? How many people have actually gone and, and know what Macbeth is about? These stories, it's if people if you can get it across to them, it's like it's like Game of Thrones, guys. Seriously, it's just like that. I'm sure there'd be more of an appetite for it. Well, there we go. You see, I mean, this is the point. I mean, you know, at some point, maybe we should we should sort of really try to get our heads around Shakespeare. I'm not sure now is the time. I mean, a, a more interesting one, I think, from our point of view, is uh, something like, uh, well, I think the two chief ones that come to mind are Conan the Barbarian and the works of Jules Verne. At this point, they are not out the door. Conan, indeed, has had several, uh, you know, reboots and reattempts and so on and so forth. But I feel particularly, and actually H.G. Wells might be in the same bucket here. I feel that these are things that in our generation, they were seen as pretty important as things that were things. And that as time progresses further along, people who were born thereafter are slowly getting to the point where it's like, and now I'm not really that bothered. Here's an even better example. H. Ryder Haggard, almost gone. If you ask most people under 25 who H. Ryder Haggard was, wouldn't have a clue. Who's H. Ryder Haggard? King Solomon's Mines. Oh, yes. The Lost World. No, oh, no, that was Arthur Conan Doyle. He wrote something like that, though. I can't remember. Even you don't know. My God, we forget. No, no, no. It's because you get you get mixed up because it was a thing, wasn't it? Dinosaur novels. He wrote to dinosaur. Well, novel, you know, uh, but it wasn't the Lost World because that was Arthur Conan Doyle. It was a different one. As regards to to Conan and H.G. Wells, in some ways, because they're they're so essential to the genesis of genre, certain genres, they're kind of the template upon which people have built. So you just watch War of the Worlds, it is a bog-standard alien invasion movie. You watch Conan and the Barbarian, it's a bog-standard man-with-a-big-sword-has-adventure story. Yes, uh, but then, and, and I think H. Ryder Haggard is the perfect, the perfect vehicle for this. In the 80s, kids could know who H. Ryder Haggard was. I had an, an edited audiobook of King Solomon's Mines. I'm not sure how much editing had been done in the way of political correctness, but I think even at that time, some must have been in that way. Because one of the problems, indeed, of Conan and H. Ryder Haggard is that they're incredibly racist, unfortunately. But yeah, H. Ryder Haggard in particular... It's probably is, another reason he's, he's got a kind of, kind of cultural suppression on him at the moment. He's just not, not, um, not in... Yes. And uh, also, um, there's, I mean, the other one that, that I was told about that I think is an example of something that I don't expect many people in our generation would even be aware of. But the generation before us kind of knew who he was. P.C. Wren. Mm, no. Bogest. Well, you, you had a lot more literary like family growing up than the one. Oh I yes, I mean the only reason I know particularly that Bo, I knew what but that Bogest existed. I mean he's it's where all the kind of cliches that we we knew cliches that came out of PC Ren, all that stuff about being in the Foreign Legion in the desert and being buried up to your neck in sand, and and uh, French people shouting at you and then it being the hardest place on earth to be. That's all like derived from. So, well, particularly Beaujest. But the thing about it is that even at that point, 
only I only know that the PC Ren exists because my father, who is the generation, well, a couple of generations above me because of the way these things work, he wrote an article about how PC Ren was one of his favourite uh, popular authors of Days Gone By uh, due to the fact that he would take his characters and seemingly for no reason whatsoever would just put them through hell. You know, if we put people through hell now, it's far more in the pulp tradition that there's some kind of action or whatever but what he liked to do pc ren that is is create nice people with you know who should be having nice lives and what have you and then just completely ruin them and that's what he he used to do and and this was fascinating because it's something that we really don't do that much anymore a theory i've just pulled out of my ass could it be to do the fact that you know in, in many ways, I say this is the right way to do this. Uh, in fact, I believe Josh Whedon says you get your characters, you stick them up a tree, and you throw rocks at them. Uh, so the whole thing about the equilibrium of, of normality being in flux is what makes a novel a novel. Surely it's what the story is. But, of course, we now have a generation that's grown up on television, which is used to having things in a regimented reset, where the boat never gets rocked so much that uh, things are totally in flux. And the series we tend to go insane about these days, perhaps, perhaps Game of Thrones is a good example, is that this is a thing where the status, status quo is in a constant flux and adjustment. Uh, and so things are always developing, changing and moving on, which gives us an immediacy and now uh, about it that's happening. There is a, there is another side to that coin. You, you, I think you have a point there. Uh, but uh, one of the other most popular series is that is in currently, and it's it's another one of these ones where happy fans are quiet. Suits, which has a full five star rating on Amazon Prime, it's video from hundreds of votes that Suits fans really love. Suits, do you know Suits? You probably don't. No. No, this is a show which has an unremarkable premise in that uh, basically the way it starts is that there's this guy, this kid genius with an eidetic memory. He's, he's an orphan and he's made some bad choices and he nearly went to law school because he really wanted to be a lawyer. But then his poor choice of company and his uh, poor life circumstances and necessity generally led him down a path where he would never be admitted to his law school of choice, which is a shame because he would have done... We know he would have done gangbusters at that and then he accidentally runs into this sort of slick high-priced new york lawyer and the new york lawyer identifies in this kid that he is capable even though he doesn't have all the pieces of paper to prove it and so they conspire together to pull him into the world of being a lawyer even though he doesn't have any of the paperwork and I think what excites people about this show is that it, it does actually comment on the equilibrium of television by saying, well, what these characters are fighting for is an equilibrium of the... They're fighting for the show to be like a television show because all their threats are things that will upset the equilibrium. You've got characters there on screen fighting to maintain a lack of action but the thing about it is that what that means is that the writers are at liberty to make the things that could threaten to every threat is one that could completely destroy the entire show's setup like everybody will lose their jobs like the whole setup of the show is regularly imperiled by the actions of the characters and that if any of these things these threats matured that would be it lights out no more show like the actual show itself would be untenable. Maybe that's one of the reasons why people are so into the sort of setup of it is because the threats aren't just, oh, then this character will die, but the show can roll on. It's like, no, if any of these things that happen actually happen, the show is over. Like this, it will just be gone. Mm, there will be yeah. no reason to continue this show on past the point at which any of these things happen. So yes, that is that is a very interesting point. But what I mean, I think we're, I'm going to take it a shade further. Um, I mean, it's in we've we've been through you know things we know about that we can talk about, and things that we know a lot of other people don't know about, and then things that most people don't know about. Now we're going to go into a, an arena that says. We can't, we may love things because they're nearly lost to us, like get really passionate about them, but we can't get passionate about the things that are lost to us. There are things that are going to be existent in the past that we just don't know about, so we can't really discuss them specifically, but at the time they might have been kind of a big deal. 
but they're since. Yeah, oh, well, uh, <clears throat> a few examples that when I was knocking around sort of before the show started was BBC and t- television in the 60s. Things were mastered onto videotapes, and videotapes were highly expensive things, uh, and things might have a contractual repeat at some point, and maybe they might get sold overseas, in which case you'd make up a whole different film for it to sell to other countries who might not have video technology. But those videotapes were wiped. And major shows from the, from the, from the yesteryears, which our parents talk about, Zed Cars or Dixon of Doc Green, which ran for years, a whole year's worth of episodes from those are gone. I mean, also Doctor Who. The number of people who can claim to have seen every episode of Doctor Who is very small, because some of those episodes got shown once in the 60s on a Saturday tea time, and that was it. If you didn't catch it, bad luck. Just to kind of expand further, the major losses for Doctor Who in series 3 and 4 Series 3 is interesting. William Hartnell's health was in decline. Producers were coming and going, generally speaking. The female companion was coming and going. And Hartnell was having difficulty with his bad health. He was forgetting his lines. He was passing dialogue off. He would take whole weeks off where the Doctor would wander off around the corner and be back next week. The only central character who was staying around was, believe it or not, Peter Purvis, who these days is better known for being a Blue Peters presenter. But he was the structural pillar for the entire third series of Doctor Who. And goodness me, he seems to have been very popular with people. In fact, they didn't want him to go when he left. He didn't want to go either. The producer said, no, companions shouldn't stay longer than a year. A rule that hasn't applied before him and never applied after him. And he was written out. Most of Peter Purvis's run does not exist. All the kids that grew up watching him said, yes, he was really, really good. He, he was carrying the show for a year. He should be one of the most beloved companions the series has, looking back on it nostalgically. Pfft, who remembers that? Peter Purvis, guy from Blue Peter. It almost feels embarrassing he was a companion. Strange that, isn't it? Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's, yes, that's the thing. I mean, you know, you, I mean, my dad is a similar, I mean, he he takes it to another level, but one of the things that he does now is that he looks back on uh, popular authors of the 19th and early 20th century uh, who we don't know at all like guys who wrote for fr- like serials for french newspapers and stuff like that you know like we, we think that all of this stuff like lost and 24 and and stuff where they just make it up as they go along now, that's a new thing but it's really <laughs> no. not i mean there these all of the twist was made up as it went along <clears throat> yes exactly i mean you know there's always this thing of the idea that you have written yourself into a corner or that in a way the only way to produce this exciting fiction is to write yourself into a corner and then write yourself out of that corner again and i think that people who become addicted to such a type of serial are really going well that writer's managed to completely shaft himself now and that it's the skill of writing in that genre direction is more to do with the idea of going reading today's episode and thinking i don't know how he's going to solve that and then seeing if the author himself can so you're reading it i mean you know that's the other thing people think is new is meta entertainment but that is a type of meta entertainment where you're thinking well i don't want it to be a stupid resolution to that cliffhanger i want them to do so i want them to have thought about it i want him to show that you know how clever he is that that we think there's no way out of x but he shows us a perfectly plausible way out of it that isn't just oh and then he wasn't really there or he jumped out of the car before it went off the cliff or whatever it is you know, people used to do that for fun too. Yeah, I mean, various writers have their own methods for doing things, but so there's a there's a school of writing which loves the immediacy of doing it. They hate writing out treatments and mapping it out and, and, and just going through the motions of putting the words down the page. They, they love being in the moment as much as the viewers when they're writing it. Uh, and so I think they, they get a, as much of a thrilling kicker or a good cliffhanger as we do, because now they get to sit down there and devilishly try and be clever and show off about it all. Very exciting way to go about your work, really, if that's your career choice. Yes, it's terribly sad, though, all these serials, because, you know, like television in the old days was, it wasn't considered forever. It was considered immediate entertainment. Here's your episodes. Here's your latest edition of this serial in this one magazine. And when those go, you know, it doesn't get picked up as some kind of book compilation later or something like that. That was your lot. It was never designed to be forever. And that shocks us in the age of digital backups and, and, and nothing ever being, you know, lost forever. It, it's shocking to us that the well, I mean, going to darkness. 
it's obviously such a it's it's, it's such a, a an important thing for things to disappear or be forgotten or or what have you that um the my next note uh, which is somewhat tongue-in-cheek is copyright wiped out the dinosaurs a few years ago we had the first year in which nothing passed into the public domain from the past because the various jiggery pokery of the law makers in our current society had dictated that copyright had now closed the window nothing more would come into the public domain until some time in i think 2019 20 and if they change it in the meanwhile then they still won't then that that in a way we have a legal enforcement of redundancy and i do mean redundancy because although this copyright quote-unquote protects the quote-unquote rights of the disney corporation to continue to profit off snow white a cartoon made in the 1940s there are things under copyright from the 1990s i mean i discussed a while back highway to hell the uh, patrick bergen is the devil movie with the jokes about people driving through hell uh, and so on and so forth uh, lot i mean it will be lost that is that is it is inevitable that there are digital files that have been ripped from the VHS that are completely illegal, by the way. But the people who could legally charge you money to have a digital copy of Highway to Hell, not interested. And the fact of the matter is, therefore, that the illegal copies, one, they're very low quality. And two, you know, people are just... I mean, they don't openly go, oh, here's a copy of this film that we love. That is great. He's got some really good ideas in it that uh, I just want to pass around here. They're not doing it openly and, and, and off the top of the, and there is, you know, you could get yourself an old VHS cassette, but of course, VHS cassette recorders are now, well, I mean, thankfully there's a market for clamping a USB motherboard onto all of these, you know, tape players and things like that from the, the, the 1980s and then selling it to people to, to digitize stuff. But of course, then you've bought a VHS video cassette and a VHS recorder with the sole probably intention of sending it down the USB wire. And as they like, you know, this is a phrase I'd not heard until a few years, format shifting it into a thing where we can play it on modern, modern equipment. But the actual people who legally could do that and then sell us that thing not interested and i'm going on about highway to hell because it's a film that i like but there are dozens hundreds i mean if you think about think back to the days when you used to you know parents got magazines on a sunday and that the magazines actually felt it was worthwhile to put uh, video club adverts on the back with loads of covers of, of videos that you could order through the video club but of course all the things that had been in the cinema would be you know filter through these clubs but actually two-thirds of the titles on those video club catalogs were produced for video by companies that had no interest in a cinema release and those films only ever came out on VHS video which you could tape over by taping a bit of sticky tape over the little tab thing and then you could just like tape the sports over it when you were bored of the movie or you just threw the VHS out because now it was the era of DVDs or whatever and those films are held in you know until 90 you know 90 years 70 to 90 years after the person who owns the rights to them or is, you know, uh, posited as the creator has expired, but they're not interested in trying to make any money off it or distributing it or even looking at it again. So they'll just disappear. And that's things from the 80s in our lifetime. There are there is huge scatters now and most of it, as Theodore Sturgeon said, 90 percent of everything is crap. But it's that 10 percent. 10% of those things that are just going to be forgotten from the last 30 years that have something of worth in them. Amazing Mr. Blunden. Um, yes, the wife has just come in and shouted at me, the amazing Mr. Blunden. And this is, an, this is, this is actually quite an amazing story. Uh, three weeks ago now, the amazing Mr. Blunden, if you must have seen this, of course. Ian. I, I have not seen this, but I know Siri's been seeking a copy for some time. Yes, yes. What's quite funny is the other week we did 2016, we talked about Pan's Labyrinth. You said, I haven't watched it yet, I have the DVD, la-di-da-di-da. Have you mm. watched Pan's Labyrinth yet? No, I didn't. Right. 
in our first in obvious Halloween show 2013, you made the statement that you had not seen Padmanabhan Labyrinth, but you really wanted to see it. That was uh, on October the 31st, 2013. So this has been a long quest for you, as long as Sue's quest for a copy of The Amazing Mr. Blunden. But anyway, yeah, Commode and Mayo named this movie their TV movie of the week three weeks ago. Unfortunately, I only listened to the podcast after it had actually been broadcast. But the BBC, I think it was, had generously decided to put on a showing of this movie that they have access to. At, I think it was something ridiculous like 5.30 a.m. And then there was much conversation. Should we get the family out of bed and all sit around and watch this movie? And people say, yes, good. And I was like, DVRs, people. TiVo, come on. Get with the modern age. But... The point about it is that getting a digital copy of this in some other format, DVD download, utterly impossible. It's a, it's a much cherished, and people keep writing in. I mean, Sue is not alone in her enthusiasm for this movie, but yet the people who own and control the distribution of the movie are not trying to make money by distributing it to us, and therefore it doesn't matter how much these people love it, eventually, if it is not released, it will be lost. This is why I say, you know, copyright wiped out the dinosaurs. When people write stories about unusual things wiping out the dinosaurs, you always take, you know, the thing du jour, uh, such as in the 80s, there were lots of things about the dinosaurs developing a highly advanced civilization that wiped itself out with nuclear weapons. And now no doubt that you could uh, uh, write a story about it, it being, you know, terrorists or something. Global warming. Global warming, exactly. Whereas uh, another equally ridiculous uh, thesis is that uh, the dinosaurs evolved a highly uh, evolved situ- uh, uh, digital uh, civilization in which uh, eventually they, they had a really big problem with video piracy and what have you. And so they made copyright laws more and more draconian until eventually it, uh, it, it evolved a two-sided civil war between copyright protectionists and uh, dinosaur pirates. Dinosaur video pirates. Wow, I want to see this movie now. Um, and they got involved in some kind of apocalyptic war, probably involving nuclear weapons, in which they bombed themselves into the ground. And the reason that we have no evidence of this is partially because the bombs wiped out most of the evidence, but also because they couldn't archive everything because everything was copyrighted to the original distributor. And so there was no, you know, they had an internet, but they could not distribute things via it because to do so would be to break their own laws. I mean, that's the sort of the way that I'm, I'm kind of putting it. It's, it's a yes. silly idea. There's a more serious thing to this. I mean, in the past, we have speculated about wouldn't it be nice if they just put all this stuff on some big server somewhere and if you wanted a DVD of it, you just mail order it online and it prints the DVD and sends it off to you. Wouldn't that be lovely and nice? But you're right, because they have copyright hold over these, that means people can't lawfully duplicate their own copies which means you've got to pray that the people who do own the copyright of these things are storing them correctly the film cans degrade over time hard drives eventually pack up uh, videos don't last forever so you get you kind of hope that, that you are putting these up in a cloud somewhere aren't you i'm just making sure you have got multiple copies I, I hate for one warehouse fire to wipe out the complete collection of something rather that we did think was safely banked for our cultural archive well, I think that there's also a point at which there is this kind of area of culture which people regard as not being as being disposable, and that all of the things that we've talked about, you know, Amazing Mr. Blunden, the works of H. Rider Haggard and P.C. Wren, to a certain extent, the works of Robert E. Howard, and so on and so forth, are earmarked in the well does it really matter if these things are lost i mean thankfully for books particularly the ones that people have bothered to preserve they are now in the internet and when they've fallen out of copyright things like the gutenberg project have just put them there and as long as the internet keeps going those things will as well the ultimate cloud yeah it's it's almost impossible to wipe them out almost not definitely, but almost. Uh, we have this window, which people, which anti sort of pro liberalization of copyright bods call a sort of golden age where we have all of this stuff that is now in the public domain that is culturally rich and so on and so forth and needs to be preserved forever but our society has deemed that this is becoming dangerous uh, in a way sort of round the back way and and said well no things maybe we should enforce 
the losing of certain things. And I think that's where the argument comes from. I mean, when people lose all the, the original manuscripts of some really amazing newspaper serial from 1847, people go, well, that was a long time ago and blah, 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 blah. And, and we didn't have all the stuff, you know, computers and stuff that we have today. Uh, and, and that in fact, things like The Amazing Mr. Blunden and Highway to Hell and so on and so forth, we have a means by which we could render them into a state where they would never be lost but we just don't because the people who are deemed by the law to be in control of them have said it's not worth it this i've decided that this is disposable much the same way that the bbc who owned doctor who said oh why do we want to keep those let's just get rid of them you know doctor who said cars who cares Nobody's going to want to watch that in 20 years' time. Nobody's mm. going to care about it. And they just went, there we go, because they were the owners and controllers of those media. And so they just decided, yeah, forget that. Well, they own it, they can break it. I mean, do you think there should be a much shorter lifespan on copyright? And as an example, MGM's Wizard of Oz, is it right that they can now be bilking the great-grandchildren of the people they first made that film for for money for that film. Surely by now, Wizard of Oz with Judy Garland is just a cultural artifact and should belong to everyone as a matter of culture. Right, okay, there's two points here. Uh, the, the part, there's part of me that says, no, I absolutely, as a person who creates things, I acknowledge that there is a certain point in time at which I will go, hey, you know what? This thing has done all the work for me that it ever possibly is going to. Um, and that's, but that shouldn't be the measure. I'm just saying that that's what's going to happen. And therefore, hey, have it. You guys take it and run with it and off you go. Yeah. I mean, you know, that shouldn't be the measure because you can still make money out of the Wizard of Oz. So if you were going to say, well, the measure is, could it still make the original creator money? That's not the measure. The measure is, have they had a fair crack of the whip? I mean, it, it always boggles my mind that when it comes to the area, arena of science and invention, patents have a built in expiration date. Yes. When I was a kid, it would cost me a pound a tablet for cetirazine, otherwise known at the time under the trade name Zyrtec, uh, to help me with my hay fever. Now I can nip down the chemist because the patent's expired and just buy a pack of 14 for three pounds because the patent's expired. I mean, that's, you know, and that's something that's like it's a medical thing. Those pills are seriously helpful to me in stopping me from turning into a, a soggy mess whenever the, my pollen season hits, which reminds me I should start taking those soon. Uh, but when it comes to, like you say, the Wizard of Oz, yeah, whatever, you know. Uh, uh, I mean, those things that have fallen outside of that trap, like uh, the original print of Night of the, the, the Living Dead, and for a while, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, were seen as these great cultural anomalies that, that by accident had fallen into the hands of the creative commons. And then when uh, Wonderful Life was brought back in uh, because you couldn't separate the music which was copyrighted from the film, which wasn't, you know, that became a contentious moment. I say there was another window, a window from mm, sometime in the late 1970s up until mm, sometime in the mid-noughties when things could just disappear very much the highway to hell amazing mr blunden phenomenon um and indeed that bbc television series we we once cooed over the moon dial all of these things can just disappear because computers haven't got to the stage they're at today but they were there so you could do stuff with them but people just aren't but now people are like you say putting things in a cloud or you know backing things up or making sure that things are not lost as a matter of course because storage space and processing power and broadband and the internet and everything's quite trivial it's trivial to take a television show master and then back it up to the cloud so they just do it as a matter of course but in a way is that not a different kind of nightmare where we have a society where absolutely no cultural artifact no matter how much it's uh, episode six of season three of jersey shore can be lost none of it it's all available to everybody all the time there is a whole vein of science fiction about people who can't forget things and what a terrible thing it is to be in that position. We seem to have passed into an era where not one single thing that passes can be forgotten. 
We've got thousands of channels and internet streaming services. Is this a bad thing? I mean, I've only got so many hours in the day. If I don't want to watch something, I don't watch something. Well, yes, I'm aware of that. But where something has been lost or, you you know, where you're even aware that that thing existed, uh, you have to watch something else. And my last point, so we'll tie them together, is uh, we definitely don't love new things. The, the number of new things that get embraced by people just off the bat, it's unusual enough that it becomes a thing. You know, when people ran out to watch The Sixth Sense, that was unusual. People recognised the embracing of something yeah, fairly original. That was, a ghost, as, that was a ghost story at the same time, though. So well, yes, I know, but it, but it, Bruce Willis was not Sherlock Holmes, and Haley Joel Osment was not the little orphan Annie, and so therefore we can say within. I mean, the point is that you could. We're not going down that road where nothing is original because we already know that. What I'm saying is where you know. I mean, this is the thing. I wrote Shadow Cities in which I basically did what the developers of Eternal Darkness had done and took the entire Cthulhu mythos changed the names of every elder god. I mean, it was the thinnest of paper masks over each of the, the Lovecraftian entities. It started from a thing where I actually just used the Cthulhu stuff. In this country, I believe, in fact, I know, because my dad comp- continually complains about people making money off, off Cthulhu things and how, you know, you, you just, oh, just put a few elder gods in it, it'll be fine. And that's just, you know, it's that's a kind of an, almost become a new kind of hack need old saw that i thought that i couldn't do that whereas in this country apparently i can but even so i'm perfectly happy with the fact that the things that i created which are side shifted from things that someone else created are sufficiently different that i'm not hidebound by canon and that's fine but the point is that my dad said oh you should just re redo it all as a love cry you know just do a search and replace put everything in the cthulhu mythos and reissue it i'm sure it'd sell better and i'm sure he's probably right but do I want to do that? <laughs> I think people should be quite happy with, you know, it's like people should be happy with eternal darkness. We don't love things that are new. Things that are well, new get ignored and abused and put in a corner. Interesting Cthulhu factoid. The players of the famous Call of Cthulhu role-playing game complained. Uh, they said one of the problems is that we're all fans of Lovecraft. We all know the mythology. So playing these people that are discovering these things is quite difficult. So the manufacturers of the role-playing game issued a completely new mythology source material for you to play with. Isn't that interesting? That is the that is the inverse of everything. Because Cthulhu is just this thing that everyone can source, but the actual Call of Cthulhu role-playing game has to make up its own crap to be interesting and new. Well... Yeah, I mean, I guess that that's, a, yeah, again, you, you've said, isn't it interesting in the sense of, isn't it aberrant, which it is. And in fact, as we're talking about Lovecraft, the uh, use of the word aberrant seems completely uh, legitimate. But um, in 2013, we all lamented the passing of Pacific Rim. I mean, at this stage, we're in 2015. Nobody said we have a proper script and we're just looking for finance. It seems that Pacific Rim was a one off. It will never happen again. Yeah, there will be no Pacific Rim 2. As far as I know, I stand ready to be proven wrong because it's not the longest gap between two movies that we've ever seen in the world. Who knows? You know, people are still and holding out for is, is still keen and has talked about what his plans for second. Yeah, he was be. very keen. He was keen for for a quite a long time afterwards. But I think it's that idea where you're like, you're not sure how an idea is going to go across. So you talk it up a bit and see, you know, run it up the flagpole, see who salutes and not enough people saluted. So he's kind of let it go, even though affection for this. I mean, this is the thing. What's ironic about it is that in the background, Pacific Rim is now winning over new people, new fans, I think, all the time. I think Pacific Rim is generally agreed to be a pretty good movie. And then, you know, there are people who don't like it and that's fine and they can stay where they are. That's the way the world works. But there are more and more people who come to this thing and they're like, oh, yes, this is pretty good. I really love that. And then there are people who probably were uh, in 2013, if they were born in like 2005, they were eight. They were a little bit young for Pacific Rim. But then they get to see it when they're older. And then when they get to be like 25 or where, oh, I remember Pacific Rim when I was a kid. That was amazing with the robots and the dinosaurs. And eventually somebody will reboot it and then it'll be huge. And that's just the thing. 
But this is, I mean, I mean, I've almost answered my last question is why are we obsessed with ensuring a constant supply of quote unquote? I know that Pacific Rim is derivative. We're not going down that, uh, that conversational alleyway right now. But why are we so insistent on ensuring a constant supply of new stuff, bearing in mind the fact of how badly new stuff because, does in the bigger be- culture? Because goodness me, films are, have the biggest reach for audience of all the media that we have, just the way it is. And we always get a bit grim and fed up when they're just recycling the same idea, particularly when they're recycling ideas from our childhoods in some strange way. It's like, I can't believe I've looped around or back to the beginning of this thing all over again, how grim and depressing that is. You know, it's a, a sense of cultural paralysis that no new things can come onto the turntable. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I mean, I think there were always those people... I mean, anyone who cares about culture uh, cares about there being new things. But the weird part about it is that everybody... We we are also creative people. We would like to be making new things and putting them out there for people to love and enjoy. Yes. Uh, Well, everybody would. I think that's the thing. Everybody wants to make something new that people will love. But in in fact, just as 90% of everything is crap, I would say like 98% of new things are loved by no one when they're new. I mean, I've always come back to this. Canon is very important. That and that what that basically means is that when something has become a thing that's been around for a while, then it starts to possibly pick up headway, or it falls into that other category of things that people are eventually going to forget. So it's like you know, people getting into a hot bath. They have to do it slowly. Oh, this is too new for me. And I think people underestimate just how damaging the uh, arena of unfamiliarity is, is, is all. So, so just to backtrack a bit, when do you think the copyright on films should expire? The easier question to answer is, say, if I wrote something new and put it out there, when would I think I'm pretty okay. much done with this? James Bond is 50 years old. Should people be, be able to just release Dr. No now for free? I mean, this is the, this is a very interesting question that you raise. James Bond himself has migrated from Ian Fleming's novels into novels by other people that have been committed. There is actually some cultural effort on part of distributors and so on to produce new James Bond that makes the thing. To which extent you could say that James Bond himself as a character is not the same as Sherlock Holmes. And he's not the same as people who are just forgotten. Such as, oh, what was her name? A, a detective from yesteryear, such as Ellery Queen. You know, like Ellery Queen, I imagine, is still under copyright. Uh, prob- very probably, in fact. Uh, but should we be able to write, and, and oh, I mean, to take something that maybe people will be more familiar with, Quincy. Yeah, mm. Quincy is definitely still under copyright. But should people be able to write new James Bond stories willy-nilly? Probably not, because they're still producing movies. They're still doing, you know, they're still producing novels even of James Bond. Should people be allowed to write Quincy fan fiction and maybe profit off it? Well, why the hell not? Who cares? You see, the, the things are different. Different things are different. There we go. I'm fully in with the interwebs. So, you know, I... I would say that there is a, a, a difference. I, mean, I think that's the point. James Bond is a kind of an entity where, okay, so maybe Dr. No is old enough that that could be in the public domain. You know, the amount of money generated by people buying new copies of Dr. No is probably relatively small. But should James Bond be in the public domain? Probably not, because he, as a, as a cultural entity, still makes plenty of coin for the people who own and arbitrate that thing. Uh, but then you take another th- property such as Quincy. And in fact, I mean, what's really interesting is that um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Kindle Worlds. No. Uh, Amazon have a project called Kindle Worlds, which started unspectacularly enough. They essentially was an idea way for people to write Kindle novel, novellas and novels uh, for people to download and, and buy for money, set in established universes. And their, their trumpeting cry when they started was Gossip Girl, which I believe is no longer a Kindle world. But the most surprising one of these was G.I. Joe. Like that is now currently a Kindle Worlds project. But part of the rules are that you must base your G.I. Joe fan fiction on 
the three animated series of G.I. Joe and probably the animated movie. And you must not use characters from the reboot live action movies starring Dwayne Johnson. So therefore you must, in the G.I. Joe fiction, there are other rules as well, but it must adhere to the cartoon series. So you essentially have to be very familiar with the cartoon series in order to be able to write the fan fiction. And I found that kind of interesting. So, yeah, I, I think that there definitely needs to be a shake-up. But, uh, and I think the shake-up needs to be in, you know, uh, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, I would say you take a bog-standard, basic, you know, 80% reading of cr- content creators. And I would say after, I would say f- 10 years, mm-hmm. probably, I would probably say I'm done. I'm, you know, in 10 years' time, Will people still want Which is to pretty pay much the same as a, pretty much the same as a pharmaceutical uh, copyright? Then, yeah, it's like a patent. Yeah, but then I mean they used to have all this stuff about people being able to renew copyright and and what have you. I think that the idea of uh, locking it in. I mean, essentially what people now either have to do is make a, a publicly written statement that this thing no longer be- belongs to them and is now in the public domain forever after, or that it will automatically be locked to them until 70 or 90 years after their death. Hmm. And that's, it's like, yeah, that's a bit over the top. So yes, I'm keen on some copyright, but not as much as we have. But then at the same time, I notice, having had this discussion, that one of the consequences of locking off the acquisition of old culture is that in in a time when things aren't lost as casually as they were in the era of Dixon of Doc Green, this ensures that things are lost. You know, you have to, if you want to create something, it pretty much has to not include many of these things which it's quite easy to get your hands on they never to my knowledge broadcast a series which was quite popular in the u.s quite popular not popular enough to go past three seasons mind you but quite popular cult i think is definitely the word veronica mars we never got that in the uk i can buy it on dvd and now it is a kindle world it, it's it's like there are there are ways and there are means i think things are going to change but it's almost like copyright, the draconian copyright regulations of the US and uh, by extension somewhat the UK these days, in a way ensure that we don't get this sludge of just everything being derivative of something that already exists. Because it can't be by law. You have to create something new, even though we already know there's a pain barrier that everyone's going to hate it. <sighs> Dear me, what are we to do other than just moan about these things on our podcast? Well, I don't know. I think that was uh, pretty good. I, mean, I think we stepped through the issues there. I mean, it's, I don't think we really wanted to come up with answers. We just wanted to raise some interesting questions, which I believe we have done. And indeed, if people wish to weigh in on such a discussion, not that they ever have before, but, you know, 100 shows, we're still striplings, you know, we're still very new. And as we know, people don't love new things. So if you're one of those uh, trendsetters, those uh, fashionistas who's got hip to the revenge of the 80s kids vibe where might you go to shout about your own cultural cosmopolitan sophistication ian well one place you could go to submit a comment which we can copyright and monetize for our own benefit would be our facebook page which you can find on facebook forward slash revenge of the 80s kids and that's 80s as in letters numbers so that's 80s uh, please go there and like our page it is our community hub we put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But podcasts are what it's all about. And for those who want to point your browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-A-S, kids.podomat.com, uh, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice, or download and keep forever copyright-free episodes yourself track from there uh but uh, this is only where most recent episodes are stored for the back catalog of road shows you must go forth and type in the letters the 80s kids dot blogspot dot com into your browser and revealed unto you will be a full archive of all our old shows resting there for your perpetual enjoyment but if this isn't enough 80s kids for you you can seek down and hunt down individual 80s kids in such places as 
Uh, well, Leo Stableford.blogspot will come. There's, at the moment, the archive has got up to somewhere around the quarter past mark, like 25 episodes. Yeah. New episodes that I'm archiving will be archived to direct to the archive, but old episodes that I've archived are still only available easily. They can be found on the internet, but I would be very surprised if you were to actually hunt them down using like internet search engines and stuff. And there's a much easier way, which is go to leostableford.blogspot.com, where if you look through the posts, everything between like 25, 26 ish and uh, 90, they're available somewhat. Actually, some of them, the links are broken, but they will be appearing on the archive over the few and in a few episodes. We, none of this will matter because uh, we will be totally up to date on there so uh, but if yeah. you want to see other stuff that i'm doing leostableford.blogspot.com if, if if you want to uh report uh, our philosophy abuse and crimes against ideology um and therefore make a photo fit of us out of little bits of sketched facial detail the person you might go to is justin who can be found justinwyatt.deviantart.com uh, where you will also find other examples of his less litigious work and that would about cover all the 80s kids of where you may find us um and see what we have been up to mostly this at the moment because of our 100th episode and the celebrations thereafter thereof uh, but yes, we are entirely copyright free. We do it for a laugh. And it's a good job that that's why we do it, because there are very precious few other reasons, I would say. No, that should be the way it is for everything. Everybody should do stuff because they enjoy it, really. Yes. Well, some people enjoy making money, sadly. So there we go. <laughs> Source of all evil. Well, Leo, I think it's time we all turn in and have some sleeps. Oh, no. I just thought of something. Leo, all our dreams will have them, those experiences, and they'll just disappear. They'll be ephemera. We've got to develop some technology where we can back up our own dreams. It's possibly... Oh, the wife's running in, shouting, wait, stop the presses. Does this mean you're not being paid hundreds of pounds per episode? I'm not being paid hundreds of pounds per episode. You! <laughs> okay. I don't believe I ever intimated that I was being paid hundreds of pounds per episode. I wish I was. I'm sure that Ian wishes he was being paid handsomely for every episode no, too. Tormented. But there I, we go. I okay. settle, I'll set off a five bob of scotch egg in the bus fare home. <laughs> so there we go. All right, cool. So, uh, yes, we shall be back next week with, with everybody ship shape and Bristol fashion. Uh, and I'm about to slink off and, uh, in amongst doing a uh, healthy outdoor pursuits, I will be cramming in, uh, uh, recently those of you who know me may have seen that I was doing a saw marathon. This was not for any particular reason, but just because I suddenly realized that most of the saw movies were available now on various streaming services. So I thought I'd catch up and that was very interesting indeed. But this week I should be doing a Hellraiser marathon and there is a reason for that too which shall become revealed uh, what are you going to do this week well I've got to go down the DIY store and buy lots of nails for that Hellraiser retrospective we're doing next week oh shit I gave the game away <laughs> so until then uh, be careful around any kind of fidgety kind of puzzly type thing you might lay your hands on uh, because otherwise you may find your flesh ripped apart by hooks before you have time for us to do that to you next week and until then, we are demons to some and angels to others. Bye-bye. Farewell. Farewell.